And take your scriptures and turn with me to Genesis chapter 13. I want to invite everyone back tonight to our Christmas Eve service. Bring a friend, bring a neighbor, bring a loved one who maybe, maybe doesn't know Christ. That's at 6 o'clock tonight. Uh, Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, a couple pastors back, his name was Donald Gray Barnhouse, maybe some of you have known of him or heard of him. He once told the story of a prominent American family in his town whose son went away to, in World War I and uh, found Christ on the battlefield. Gave his life to Christ. The day came when he was going to return to his pre-war life in a wealthy suburb of a, with a, that large American wealthy family. And he came and he talked to Donald Barnhouse and expressed fear that he would soon slip back into his old habits. He was afraid that love for parents and brothers and sisters and his friends that he had might turn him away from following Christ. Barnhouse told him that if he was careful to make a public profession of his faith in Christ, he wouldn't have to worry about any of that, that it would take care of itself. So he and the young man made a a covenant that the young man would tell the first ten people that he came in contact with that he had become a Christian. Almost immediately, while standing on the platform getting a train back home, he met a girl whom he had known socially. She was delighted to see him and asked him how he was doing. And he told her, the greatest thing that could possibly happen to me happened to me. And the young woman said, don't tell me you're engaged. And he said, no, even better than that, I've become a Christian and put my faith in Jesus Christ. At that, the girl's expression froze. She mumbled a a few polite words and went on her way. A short time later, this young man met a man whom he had known before going into the service. And the young man said, it's good to have you back. We'll have great parties together. After pausing a moment, the young man told him the same thing he had told the girl. Again, it was a case of a frozen smile and some polite exchange of conversation. This same exchange was repeated with a young couple and two more old friends. By this time, the word had gotten around, and many of his friends began to distance themselves from him. What had happened? Nothing but that he came back a different man. That describes Abram in our story today. He's come back from Egypt a different person. Egypt had been a severe test of his faith in God. And as we see in our text today, Abram had grown in his faith. And he had come back from Egypt a different man. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev 
and his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become a very wealthy man in livestock and silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving with him, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between me and you, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes. From where you are, and you look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. If you look at anyone's faith walk, if you look at your faith walk, it is a study in contrast, isn't it? At one moment, incredibly faithful. At the next, incredibly unfaithful. One moment, patient with your kids, long-suffering. The next moment, ready to snap. One moment, caring for your spouse, loving them, nurturing them. The next moment, callousness. Generous is all get out one moment. And close grip the next. Forgiving, 70 times 7 and then holding grudges. We all dip down into Egypt over and over again, just like Abram. And perhaps that's what makes Abram and his New Testament counterpart, Peter, so, so attractive to us, because they're like us. They vacillate back and forth. They struggle with their faith. They mirror our own walk. Yet, Yahweh doesn't just want us to relate to those people. 
He wants us to learn from their walk. And that's why Moses was inspired to write down Abram's return from Egypt. So, it invites us to explore our own hearts through the contrast that we see here. And the first contrast we see here is between dependence and self-reliance. Dependence and self-reliance. Abram returned from, uh, with Lot from Egypt, an even wealthier man than he was before. Pharaoh had allowed him to keep everything that he gave him. Actually, maybe even foreshadowing another exodus from Egypt with all the wealth. And as we observed last week, he went straight back to Bethel. Straight back to that altar that he had built. Straight back to calling on the name of the Lord. Straight back to worshiping Yahweh. That was his first order of business. It's interesting in our elder meetings, uh, our reading of scripture is the scripture I'm going to be preaching on the next Sunday. So we read that and we discuss it in our elder meeting. And Aaron, a couple weeks ago, posed the question about building these altars. What do you think happened there? Did, did, they, did Abram sacrifice there, even though sacrifices were not introduced yet? Very interesting question. Did he understand the aspect of payment for sin or even substitution? Maybe. Commentators are split on that. But there were probably foundational principles of worship that he went through. He just didn't build this altar and leave. He probably praised God in some fashion. He thanked God. He probably went back there and, and told Yahweh what he had done wrong in Egypt. He repented. He probably reminded himself of what God had told him about the promises. These are all just foundational worship principles, the basics of worship, praising God for what he has done through prayer and song, something we've done already, confessing and repenting our sin, realizing that God is holy, 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 and we are not. We do that through prayer and the Lord's Supper, remembering what God has said. That's why we are doing what we're doing right now. Reminding the saints what God has said. And so we could see Abraham praising God for the generosity that God has, has had towards him in his wealth. Praising him for rescuing him from Egypt, for saving his life, and for restoring his wife. I mean, imagine that relationship coming out of Egypt. Honey, you, I sold you, basically. When repenting for his unbelief and distrust about God, looking at the famine instead of looking at the promises and leaving the promised land, trading on the beauty of his wife for his, his internal heart of greed and covetousness, Repenting of his overall self-reliance. Lord, I am so sorry that I depended on me and what I saw instead of you. 
And then remembering the promises that God had given him, the promises of people and land. The promise we see repeated down here in verses 14, 15, and 16, and 17. When the, when the Lord appeared to Abraham, or, uh, came to Abram again, and said, Lift up your eyes and look to the north, the south, east, and west. All the land you see I will give to you and your offspring. And I will make your offspring like the dust. Repeating and expanding that promise, right? We see Yahweh being reminded of those promises once again, reminding him to once again, trust me, God is saying. Depend on me. Have faith in what you don't see. We see here through Abram's worship that actually bookends this section. He comes back and he worships and he ends up in in verse 18 worshiping. We see through his worship that he has grown through this difficulty in Egypt. He's been down to Egypt and he has seen the fruit of disobedience. And he comes back a different man depending on God. And that's what we need to learn, to lean on God and not on our own understanding, not on ourselves, not self-reliance. I don't want to oversimplify it, But one of the foundations, one of the functions of worship, what we're doing now, is simply reminding ourselves of these things. Reminding the people of God to depend on God and not yourself. Perhaps that's why in Hebrews 10.25 it says, it implores Don't, please, don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Don't do that. We need constant reminding of our incredible dependence on God. And we do that through praise. Not because he needs our, our words. Not because there's something deficient in him and he needs building back up. He's totally sufficient. But we need reminding of what I just prayed for, that God is sovereign, totally sovereign. Not us. That he is omniscient, all-knowing. We aren't. That he is omnipotent, all-powerful, and we're not that he is perfectly just. How he works in our lives and in the world is perfect. And our judgments are skewed. That he is completely loving. Everything that he does is loving. And we fall so short of that, don't we? That he is absolutely good. That he is always dependable. Totally faithful. Totally trustworthy. We need a constant reminder of not only that through praise, but we need a constant reminder to repent of our sins through prayer and the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters, if you are not repenting of your sins at least once a week, you will wander. 
you will wander into thinking that you're, you know, basically good. I don't do much bad. I don't sin very much. If you are not called into a place like this where you are, are asked to search your heart, proactively search your heart, you will forget. Because the constant drone of our internal monologue is towards self-righteousness. You will hear it again and again and again. We need a reminder of our need and our dependence on God. And lastly, we need a constant reminder of the promises of God. Abram's promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The promise given to Abram, think about that, 4,000 years ago, is what we are focusing on today and tomorrow. The promise of the serpent crusher in Genesis 3.15. The promise that all nations will be blessed through Abram. Jesus Christ. You know, why do we have those, those genealogies in, in Matthew and in Luke? Why? To remind us that this promise is fulfilled. Isn't that exciting? We need to be reminded of the blessing that Jesus is. We need to be reminded of the blessing of his righteousness. Think about that. The blessing of his righteousness, not ours. That he lived the perfect life, the sinless life, in actions, in word, in thought. Where we fail on a momentary basis, he succeeded in his whole life. We need reminding not, reminding not to look at our own righteousness. We need reminding of the blessing of Jesus' substitutionary death. We need that reminding. That although we sin and we deserve punishment, there is a payment for sin. And we deserve the punishment. Jesus became flesh and was born so that he could take that punishment for us. That's, that's the great exchange of the cross. That Jesus takes our punishment and we receive his righteousness. We need a reminder of the blessing of Jesus' resurrection. That we do not worship a dead Savior but a living one, raised from the dead, conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death. The promise that is given to us that if you place your trust in Jesus, even though you die, John 11, you will live. Brothers and sisters, we are a forgetful, self-reliant, independent, undependent people. We desperately need reminding of our dependence on God. 
Second contrast we see here is between peace and strife. Those reactions that we see in verses 5 through 13, where some of the issues in the herdsmen become issues between Abram and Lot. Abram's herdsmen begin quarreling because there's simply not enough pasture for their flocks and because the land had other inhabitants. I think that's why Canaanites and Perizzites are mentioned there. This land is crowded. Too many herds, not enough space. And so the herdsmen, and I think it bleeds upwards to Abram and Lot. They have to deal with something here. And it would have been so easy for Abram and totally within his right to just say, Lot, it's mine. It's mine. God gave it to me. It would have been totally in his right, not just based on the promises, but also based on the progenitor here. He was Lot's uncle. He was his elder. And that meant a ton back in that time. But he humbles himself and allows Lot to choose, doesn't he? He places Lot above himself. He saw himself, he saw himself as Lot's keeper. He humbles himself and does not manipulate the situation as he did before, right? He humbles himself and trusts in God's promises instead of what he did before. And by humbling himself, Abram becomes the peacemaker. Abram becomes the peacemaker. And this is one way we can see Christ in Genesis 13. This is, this is the way in to see Christ in Genesis 13. Philippians 2 says, Being in the very nature God... Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, he was made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ, like Abram, humbled himself. Humbled himself before us. He had the position. He was God. He didn't have to come down here. He was perfectly right and just to leave us in our sins. But he humbled himself and became a man. And like Abram, through his humility, it brought us peace, didn't it? Through what he did on the cross, it brought us peace. And now here's something that you have to understand scripturally. God sent Jesus because he loved the world, John 3.16. But that doesn't mean that we are his friends. That doesn't mean that we are his friends. Sending Jesus is kind of like sending a, a peaceful envoy through enemy lines at wartime to try and make a peaceful relationship with your enemy at that time. That's kind of understanding what Jesus was sent into in the world. He was sent through and into enemy territory. Yes, Jesus was sent out of love, but because God the Father wanted peace, 
with those who who he created. That's what Jesus was sent to offer each person, a peaceful relationship with God. Listen to how Colossians put it. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, it's talking about us. Once you were alienated from God, you were God's enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus brings a peace offering between you and God. The last contrast we see here is between Abram and his nephew Lot. And that is the contrast between faith and sight. This is the big contrast we see here. In verses 10 through 13, we read that Abram allows Lot to choose the land to settle in, right? You look and choose. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. And where does Lot look? It says he looked up and saw what? The Jordan Valley. It's down at the base of the Dead Sea. Okay? That's the Jordan Valley. And it looked good. In the last chapter, we saw Abram's downward spiral through his self-reliance. Here, we see Lot's downward spiral through living by sight and not by faith. As Dale Ralph Davies wrote, one cannot blame Lot for what he saw or what he did. He saw security from famine. He saw how well irrigated it was. He saw abundant provisions for livestock. Perhaps he saw some extra comforts for his family. But he didn't see or sense the danger. And I think Moses, if you take a closer look at these verses, Moses embeds in here the danger of what Lot saw. Look with me at verses 10 through 13. It says, Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out to the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Moses embeds these hidden dangers here for us to see. The Jordan Valley is described as Eden. It's described as Egypt. Amazingly fertile places, right? Good for food, good for security. But think for a moment, those two places. Two of the places of the greatest judgment that the Bible even ever talks about. Verse 11, we see that he set out towards the east. As we've mentioned in Genesis, east is a direction away from God. He settled geographically in the Jordan Valley near Zor. As one commentator put it, Lot moves as close to the edge of Canaan as he could 
without leaving it. And then finally, and most obviously, we read those two ominous bell tolls of Sodom and Gomorrah, places of some of the most egregious sin we read in Scripture. And we get that lump in the throat feeling when we read verse 12, don't we? Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. But that makes all the sense in the world economically. But what the Bible is trying to tell us is it didn't make any sense spiritually what he was doing. See, Lot was, do, was doing is simply living by what he saw. He saw economic growth, security, increase in comfort, seemingly good, right? But spiritually? By contrast, we see Abram had learned to live by faith. He didn't grab at the land, as I said before. He said, you choose. I trust God. He moves near Hebron. That's in the exact center of the promised land. He moves up into the mountains. That doesn't make much sense. How much do you have to depend on God for the rain in the mountains? And Abram lives by faith in the promises of God. He believes God's promises. This land is yours. I'll take care of you. That contrast should push us to plead with God for discernment we need when we're faced with these types of decisions. Not to be content with the obvious, what we see, what we understand. I don't mean to say that we put our minds on a shelf. I don't mean to say that we don't use our our understanding. Just don't lean on your understanding. Just don't say, because this makes sense logically, it's right. Living by faith means you're leaning on, pressing in on the unseen promises of God. We live by faith and not by sight. And what Lot did here is he lived by sight and not with faith. And you can see the path that that led him on. Let me be clear, it it wasn't a sin to move to Jordan. It wasn't sinful that he moved to Jordan. Or even that he pitched his tent near Sodom. That was not sinful. Just like it's not wrong to base your decisions on what you think are good opportunities. But, if you hit the fast forward button, in the next chapter we see Lot moved into Sodom. Then if you hit the fast-forward button a couple more times in chapter 19, you see that he's become an elder, sitting at the very gates. And for all we know, not condemning what was going on there. He'd become part of that. And it wasn't even wrong to move to to the edge of the promised land. But living on the fringes, Living near the edges in your Christianity leads somewhere, people. And here is the difficult stuff of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We cannot simply live by sight, by what looks good, but why it looks better, is easier, is profitable, is more comfortable, makes sense. 
We're called to ask different and more difficult questions as believers in Jesus Christ. Questions like, will this opportunity calcify my marriage? Will will what looks good to me right now distance me from my family? Will this opportunity that I think makes sense make it more difficult for me to worship the living God? Will it make sense, this, this great opportunity? Does, does it hinder me, me serving the body of Christ? Will this opportunity desensitize me in any way from sin? Sight tempts us away from thinking spiritually. It makes us think that the choice is rather obvious. But that's not living by faith. Living by faith, by definition, will cause you to make decisions based on the promises of God. Make decisions that seemingly make no sense to the world. Choose a job path, or a hobby path, or a retirement path, or a friend path that makes no sense. Master expositor James Boyce, also of 10th Presbyterian Church, wrote this, you may think that you are a lot different from Lot. But if you have to put your job ahead of your family's spiritual life, if you have put your social advancement ahead of your proper association with God's people, if you've let your choice of a home keep you from a church in which you can grow in faith and worship, You have moved from the highlands to the plains of Jordan. I know you will say that you can serve God there as well as Bethel. Lot would have said the same. But his heart was not panting after God. His heart was set on his possessions, on his sophistication, and glamour. And for that, he lost everything. Kent Hughes put it this way, Lot would certainly choose heaven over hell given the choice, but not heaven over earth. Think about that for a moment. No one here, no one here would choose hell over heaven. But every day we struggle with choosing heaven over earth. That's why we have to hear and heed the warning of living by sight and learn to live by faith. Let's pray. Father God, use this in people's minds and hearts to take any hardness, any stoneness, any calcification that we have and soften it towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.